We'll continue on through the Sermon of the Mount as we are, uh, have the pleasure of sitting under the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Truthfully, we get to do that every time the Word of God is preached, but especially it is, I think, special and unique for us to look at, uh, at hear Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount uh, and see what it is that He has to say for us as He is um, expounding largely what the Jews have heard and, and what they know of the Old Testament, and he is now taking that and teaching the law, but teaching it in its proper light and in its proper context. And so we will be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jesus says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to anyone who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As uh, Westerners, and I think, not that this is exclusively for the men, but I think I can speak, uh, especially as, as a man for men, uh, we can relate to the idea of what we would call vigilante justice. Some of my favorite movies to watch with my grandfather were John Wayne movies, and um, it is a uh, very common theme among John Wayne movies, and a lot of hero movies, or maybe even anti-hero movies that, uh, that we see today, uh, this theme of vigilante justice, this theme of, of a person being wronged or abused in some way, and then taking it upon themselves to exact their idea of what is right, what is just upon the offending party. One of my favorite movies was uh, uh, done by John Wayne, um, was a movie called Big Jake. And the premise of the movie is that this man whose um, grandson has been kidnapped, John Wayne, playing uh, the role of, of Jake, Big Jake, uh, he was then called by his wife and, and encouraged to go and get their uh, grandson back. And uh, essentially the, the movie is him doing that and doing it with a vengeance, Right, uh, And you see certain movies like this, or I think one of the classic examples that we can think of, if you're a fan of, of The Princess Bride, either the movie or the book, uh, you'll remember from that story a guy by the name of Inigo Montoya. Inigo Montoya, throughout the whole movie, uh, he is, is recalling and has been thinking for his whole life about what it is that he's going to say when he meets the man who murdered his father. And you might know the phrase, hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. I don't do it with the accent very well. I don't even try, but it's better with the accent if you can imagine it. And in the, in the end, he finally meets this man. I think he's the, the six-fingered man. And, uh, and finally, after all the years, as a, a child, he'd been longing for this moment when he could exact his revenge upon the man who murdered his father. And you have this moment where he... He gets to, after, after hearing him say this line throughout the movie, you finally see the moment when he, he faces his father's 
murderer and says the line over and over and over again and ultimately uh, he avenges the life of his father and and kills the man who her murdered his father and and i'm not lying to you i i like that part of the movie it's kind of hits us in a certain uh, certain spot it sort of scratches an itch for us a, a desire for a sort of of exacted justice upon someone who wronged us or or a family member and uh and it's a story of revenge though right it's a story of a man who is is taken up taken over by this desire to find this person who's wronged his family has wronged him has murdered his father and to exact revenge upon him as we see from our text today this idea of vigilante justice that that we are so prone to admire so prone to uh, even at times put ourselves in the shoes of what we, we might do in these situations and might feel right and, and warranted and justified and exacting revenge we see from our text today here in matthew 5 jesus speaking to this very issue and speaking to this the spirit of revenge that can so often be found in human beings we recall what Paul himself says in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We know that this heart of vengeance and this desire for vigilante justice, that though we, we see in the movies and we maybe take a certain amount of joy in, in watching it portrayed, what we also need to recognize is that this heart of vigilante justice, of revenge, of retaliation is, is one that is extremely, extremely dangerous in the life of believers. That's one that Jesus writes about here in order to correct and teach against. He starts off in verse 38 by saying this phrase that we've heard him say throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said. And then after saying that, he then proclaims to them something that Moses said and wrote in the law as it was given to him from God. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a phrase that some of us have heard before and, and maybe even used before, an eye for an eye. It's a relatively common phrase here in, in, uh, in our culture and in our context today. But it originated in the law of God. And it was a, a phrase used in a few different places in the law, uh, but it was especially known and, and accounted for in one spot in Exodus when uh, the Lord is, is laying out and explaining what it is that should happen for one who strikes uh, for example, a woman who is pregnant, if she should go into labor and, and lose that child, that there is to be an exacted apportioning of justice and retribution upon the offending party that fits the crime. In that case, if the, the baby were to be lost, then that person's life would be expected of them. There's a theme throughout the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, this idea of exacted justice, that that which, who, or excuse me, he who has been wronged is owed recompense to the same degree. As Jesus writes here, now as he's speaking to the crowd, he says, you have heard it said, again, as I said, speaking about the law and especially what they have heard from their teachers, from the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then in verse 39, Jesus says this, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus then enters into 
after saying, you have heard it said, and then expounding upon a, a portion of the law, he says, but I say to you. There are a few misconceptions about this passage, and one of the um, most dangerous ones, I think, right off the bat, is this idea that is sometimes taught, sometimes laid out by certain people who seek to explain this text, and that is that Jesus is somehow writing something contrary to the law. They see this passage where Jesus says, you've heard it said, and then says the law, and then says, but I say to you. As though Jesus is somehow saying, here is what the Old Testament Jewish law, the law that was given by God, here's what it says, but I'm giving you something different now. That no longer is is in play. I am giving you something now contrary, different from the law of God. This is a false understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And it's a, an understanding that largely is born out of not truly understanding and seeing the context in which Jesus is speaking and in preaching when he says this. He says over and over again, you have heard it was said. And in each and every case that Jesus is saying this, he is not necessarily speaking to what the law says verbatim, but rather what Jewish tradition and the scribes and the Pharisees have now taken the law and taught along with the law. You see, the the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish leaders of that day, the Jewish teachers of that day, had taken this passage, this understanding of the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, and they had expanded it and, and sort of added to it their understanding and their purpose for the law. You see, the purpose of this law, why Jesus himself, why God himself wrote down, had Moses write down in the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, a life for a life, was so that justice would be upheld. Was so that there would be a clear understanding, a clear line drawn, that when justice was to be poured out for a wrong that had been committed, for an offense that had been done, there was a standard by which that person was to be punished and it was not to be exceeded. Judgment was not to exceed, punishment was not to exceed the extent of the crime. Really, the purpose that Jesus laid this out, and he did so in the context of the nation, in the context of that being done by the civil government, by the the civil authorities, but the Pharisees had taken this teaching of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, and had removed it from its context of a civil authority, and removed it from the idea of being intended to govern and keep things just and keep people from going over the line. And they had taken this passage, this law, and distorted it to fit human understandings and human desires. They had taken this teaching that says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and used it to justify a similar to what we have seen from Inigo Montoya, a similar kind of, of vigilante justice that was allowed to be exercised in Israel. That is, they would say, according to the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, if someone wrongs you, you have the right to go and wrong them to an equal measure. It was the the typical Jewish teaching of that day that if someone were to come up to you and were to punch you in the face, justice not only allows, but demands that you punch that person back in the face. 
It was really a way that they were justifying this sort of self-governing justice, this, this self-vigilante style of justice. And what we all know to be true about this form of justice is that when it is held by human beings, it each and every time moves into revenge. We all know just how well this approach to justice works, don't we? Where you are given liberty, if you are wrong, that you are allowed to wrong that person back in the same way. Let me just ask this question. How often does that work out right? Not very. I can tell you this much. As, as a twin growing up with uh, a brother who was just 13 minutes older than me, who shared everything with me, we shared clothes, we shared rooms, we shared everything we oftentimes operated out of this kind of vigilante justice this false understanding of the law where when he took something of mine i would return the favor when he punched me in the arm i would go for his gut when he did something to me i would do it back to him but rarely rarely was it as simple as he punches me i punches him we shake hands we go our separate ways that's not the way it works, right? That's just not the way human beings operate. To be given this kind of license and liberty to exact your own revenge and call it justice each and every time results in injustice. And eventually, if left to itself, a form of anarchy, a, a form of dysfunction that can't be tolerated and can't be allowed. And so when the law was given, and, and the Lord God said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. His purpose in writing this law was to uphold justice. Was to put the right to exact judgment, to exact justice in the hands of the government, of the leaders. And to limit it to, to clear and fair and just treatment. So that even the government was not allowed, if a person was wronged, to go and and take recompense from the, offend, from the offending party that exceeded their wrongdoing. And you can begin to see how this would, would create really a very just and upright system. Because there was no Jew that was not under this law. From the highest to the lowest, they were held to this same and exact standard. So that even if, if one of the highest ranking Jewish officials were to were to commit an offense against one of the lowest of the low in Israel. What standard of justice was upheld? The same standard for everyone else. If he were to take the life of, of that man, then it was his life that was required. If he were to steal a certain amount of money from that man, then that was the amount of money that was required. You can see how this standard of justice that's, that's laid out in the law is just. And it is right and it is intended to uphold fairness, to uphold justice. And that's the way God intended. The problem is that these scribes, these Pharisees, a lot of the Jewish system at large had become corrupted, had become human-focused and human-driven, and much of God's good and right law had been distorted by these teachers. It shouldn't come as any surprise to us. And certainly, I don't, I don't think I'm saying anything that's outside of what Jesus himself would say about the Jewish system. Even in Jesus' day, he spoke very harshly and severely against the Jewish system and the scribes and the Pharisees, how they 
devour widows' houses and, and do all of these terrible and awful things. Jesus himself pointed to the temple as a demonstration and example of a broken and messed up system. And so we see another product of that in Jesus speaking out against this kind of messed up system where, G, where the law of God had been taken and distorted. It was now what Jesus was doing was not teaching something different from the law or contrary to the law. He was taking the law and seeking to strip away all of the legalistic and humanistic additions that the Pharisees and scribes had put upon it and to teach it clearly and rightly. Jesus is upholding and indeed expounding upon the moral law of God as he is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. He is not teaching something different. He is teaching a proper and correct understanding of the law. Another thing that needs to be made clear about this passage that many have fallen into is that Jesus is not here uh, preaching a message or teaching a, a, a kind of pacifism. That as human beings or as, as Christians, pardon me, that we are never ever allowed to lift a finger in, in our defense or in defense of our family or in defense of our country. That's not what Jesus is saying. That can be clearly seen and illustrated by, by various things. For one, we see that there are multiple, not just one, but, but various Christians in the New Testament who come to faith in Christ and are still allowed and, and never condemned for their role in the military. Military officials whose job it was to uphold the peace, to, to go to war when necessary. See, the Lord was not opposed to, to violence at large and across the board. The message of this passage is not pacifism. As we will see, it is rather one of self-denial and self-sacrifice. To a certain degree, Jesus is using a form of, of hyperbole in this sermon. And we see it coming out here in our, our verses today. And you see it in other places in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says that if you hate your brother, that you have committed murder... We know that that is a form of hyperbole because indeed we would never, uh, in the church, someone admits and confesses that they have hated another. We would never seek to, to take their life or have them thrown in prison for murder. There is a form of hyperbole being spoken. There is seriousness, seriousness in which Jesus is speaking, and yet we see that there is hyperbole. And again, here in this passage, we see a little bit of that coming out. We'll only be able to understand this passage when we see it in light of its proper context, as I've laid out for us in light of what it is that Jesus is speaking against. Jesus not, is not speaking against the law. He is speaking against the false interpretations of the law and applications of the law that the Pharisees and scribes have brought forward. And so, we have established then what Jesus is not doing, uh, but my hope today is to do more than just tell you what he's not doing here, but rather demonstrate for us how it is that we are to hear and take what Jesus is saying and apply it to our lives as believers. Largely, what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is he is teaching and demonstrating what it looks like to live as a believer, <clears throat> to live in and in light of the kingdom of God. And he does so by giving us four illustrations, four situations or scenarios, if you will, and he presents 
a scenario in which the, the teaching of the Pharisees and the, the false understandings of the law would say you should react this way, but Jesus is saying, this is where the, but I say to you comes into play. Jesus is saying rather than behave that way in light of this false understanding of the law and living in, in a sort of vigilante justice revenge kind of mentality, it is better to be on the opposite end of the spectrum and do like this, for this is more virtuous than their false understanding of the law. My hope today is I'm going to lay out for us three points and what it means and what it looks like to live in light of the kingdom and to love the kingdom as we look at these four scenarios. The first scenario is in verse 39. And point number one of, of my sermon this evening is that we are to love the kingdom more than your pride. You are to love the kingdom more than your pride. Verse 39 says, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is an interesting sort of cultural thing that Jesus is speaking of here. You might notice if you think about what it means to hit someone. If you were to go, and, and as people were then, they still are today, predominantly right-handed. If you were to go and strike someone with your fist, being right-handed, where are you going to hit them most likely? Going to hit them on the left cheek, aren't you? If you're right-handed, and most people were, then a typical punch, a blow intended to hurt, is going to land somewhere on the left, the left cheek, the left side of their face. So when Jesus says here, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, someone slaps you on your right cheek, he says, turn to him the other also. The idea and sort of the cultural context to what Jesus is saying here is that uh, a common way to, to insult someone was to slap them, exactly like the, the translation says. Not to slap them like this, but rather to come up and with a, a backhand to slap them across the face. And although it's not culturally done all that much today, I think we can all attest to the fact that if someone were to come up to you and slap you across the face, you would consider that quite insulting, wouldn't you? You would consider that quite humiliating. The point is not really that Jesus is saying when someone attacks you physically that you were not allowed to defend yourself. For what he's addressing here is not a physical attack, it's not a threat upon your life, but rather as a threat upon your pride that he is addressing here. To slap someone across the face in this way was, was a way to insult them, to, to abuse their pride, to run them down in a very public and distasteful way. So when Jesus is talking about this, he's not talking about pacifism. He's speaking about our pride. Because what's the natural way that we would want to react to that? We would want to slap him back, wouldn't we? Right away. Slap me like that. Insult me like that. Let me give you something back. But what does Jesus say? He says, rather than retaliate, rather than exact revenge, what are we to do but turn the other cheek and allow them that also. We're to take a radical approach to our pride and a radical approach of humility that says, you know what? Go ahead. Slap my other cheek. That's fine. No problem. We're to take on the humiliation. We're to take on the shame rather than, because remember, he's speaking in juxtaposition to the alternative, rather than exact revenge. 
So if our options are exact revenge on this person, you know, an eye for an eye, slap them right back, or embrace shame and humiliation, Jesus says, embrace humiliation. Embrace the shame. For it is far better for you to embrace that kind of shame and be humiliated than to allow sin to creep into your life and to exact revenge. The next illustration that he gives, and I'm going to combine two of them, is in verse 40 and verse 42. Here he's teaching us that we're to love the kingdom more than our possessions. Love the kingdom more than your possessions. In verse 40 he says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloaks as well. And then in verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In verse 40, Jesus is using this illustration of, a, of what he calls a, a tunic and a cloak. Most scholars recognize and, and believe that he's talking about the two basic garments that Jewish men would wear. They would typically wear an undergarment, that is their cloak, and they would wear an outer garment, that is their tunic. So that Jesus is saying here, if someone were to come up to you, and as I said this, he's kind of giving extreme examples here, right? But he says, if someone were to come up to you and sue you and win the lawsuit and take your cloak, it's better for you to give them your tunic also. This is sort of a double whammy, if you will, because for one thing, you're giving up your possession. And for many people, this outer garment that they would wear, it it doubled. If you were traveling, if you were uh, out uh, walking through the, the wilderness or for whatever reason, Uh, forced to sleep in a place other than your bed. This outer garment was one that could not only be used uh, as a sort of fashion accessory, but one that could be used as a blanket, one that could be used as a place to to lie down when you needed to. And so certainly possessions are in mind here that, that Jesus is speaking of the one who would come and sue you and take it. But even more than that, these are really the only two garments that men would wear in this time. Maybe they would wear a a, a rope or a belt around the waist, something like that. But other than that, what Jesus is saying here, someone sues you to take your clothes, give them your underwear also. It's almost kind of comical, isn't it? He's saying, look, it is better for you to take on the shame of nakedness. Give them all of it if they are so bent on doing this to you and And so set on approaching you in this way, accept the abuse, sacrifice your possessions, sacrifice your pride, and give them both. He also says in verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is saying here, encouraging us to let go of our possessions and love the kingdom more than our possessions. This is an interesting thing that he is addressing here. You see, in, in Jewish custom, how much was, uh, was typically charged in interest when someone would borrow money from a Jew? If, you living, if you're living in Israel, you're a, a Jew, you go to a fellow Jew, and you want to borrow some money from them, you want to know how much the typical interest rate was? Goose egg. Zero dollars. It was... Jewish custom, in fact, it was taught in the scriptures, in the law, not to exact interest from your 
brothers. There was a sort of a ban on usury among the Jews that your expectation was to give to your brother. If he comes and asks to borrow money, give him the money and let him pay you back that money and no more. Don't take advantage of your brother. Don't seek to exhort your brother, but give it to him freely. Jesus is saying here, someone begs from you, give to them. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is asking and and commanding these people to take an approach to their stuff that says, if someone comes into my, my house and says, may I please have this thing? May I please have some of your wealth? It is better that we would give it to them rather than live a life that is committed to ourselves and to our possessions and to maintaining what we have. Now again, misconceptions can, can abound. And frankly, I don't feel that I need, that I don't feel that, that I have to get into all the ins and outs of when you should and when you shouldn't give to someone who, who begs. But I do think that there is a, a heart of, of greed and a desire to maintain our possessions and, and what is ours and easily justify it by biblical passages. I think I've been guilty of this. We can be quick to pass judgment on others on what they're gonna use, the things that they ask for us for, and what they're gonna use money for if we give it to them. And in some cases, maybe that's true. But I think that there is a dangerous sort of wickedness in our heart and in our lives that we can easily refuse giving up of our possessions out of a desire to cling to what we have and justify it by the scriptures. I think that's a very dangerous place to be. Very dangerous place to be to justify our own pride and our own selfishness by the scriptures. This does not mean that every, you, you are to just go completely bankrupt because every person you see on the street, you ought to empty your wallet. But it does mean that we ought to live a life that cares more about the kingdom than about our possessions. To the point that when our brothers and sisters are in need, we are quick to help and give of our possessions. How do you live in light of your possessions? How do you view your stuff? What if, for example, hypothetically, we have a rummage sale coming up here in just a few weeks, as I announced this morning, and our hope is to raise money that we can, uh, me and the other people who are going to Rome can help support ourselves and make the the trip out there and uh, see how it is that we can serve and partner with the church in Rome. What if I were to come into your house and just say, okay, I'll take this and I'll take this and I'll take this and select all the things that I want to take and try and sell at the rummage sale, what would you do? If it were me, I would say, okay, how about I pick the stuff you can have for the rummage sale, okay? How about you leave this to me, and uh, and I'll decide what you can and can't have. And what am I going to choose? I'm going to choose all the junk that I'm not using, right? All the junk that's broken, all the stuff that, that doesn't really mean that much to me. And a lot of that is because I care an awful lot about my possessions. And at times, I care more about my possessions than about the kingdom of God. 
We are called by Jesus here to love the kingdom of God more than we love our possessions. Finally, point number three, we're to love the kingdom more than our rights. Verse 41, Jesus says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You've heard the phrase, going the extra mile. Phrase that's relatively common in in our language today of speaking of those who are overachievers, who are go-getters. Well, this is where that passage comes from. And it's a passage that for the Jews held just a little bit extra than for most people. You see, the idea behind this phrase, when he says, if you are forced or you are compelled to go one mile, go with him too. The idea behind this is that the Romans had this law. It was Roman law that if a a Roman soldier were traveling and carrying his gear, carrying all the things that he needed, it was his right as a Roman soldier to compel you, common citizen, whoever you were, to pick up his stuff and carry it for him a whole mile. He could just compel you. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're in the middle of. You're going to stop what you're doing. You're going to carry all my stuff. You're going to walk with me a mile. This was especially distasteful to the Jews. A, because they were living under Roman rule, Roman occupation. And so to not only live under the the excuse me, the oppression of the Roman government, they now were forced to even carry the, the equipment of these Roman soldiers, to be compelled to stop what they're doing and serve these Roman soldiers who were occupying them. And you can imagine how things could get even worse when these Romans who care very little for the Sabbath were to come along on the Sabbath and compel you to carry all of their stuff a whole mile. This was a law that was especially distasteful and hated by the Jews. Because for them, this was a, a infringing upon their rights. And we all know as Americans, you better not be infringing upon our rights. We hold our rights very, very dear to us. Rights are so important to us that we will even seek to create rights whole cloth and then defend those. What we see here, what Jesus is teaching, is really that a vengeful spirit is the product of a distorted desire for justice. You see, it's right for us to have an understanding and a desire for justice. When we watch those vigilante movies, when we see Inigo Montoya taking revenge upon his father's murder, the itch that in a sense is being scratched when we watch those and we enjoy those kinds of films and books and stories is a desire for justice. It's a desire that's intrinsic to us. It's a a desire that to a degree is right and good. We should desire justice. We should desire things to be made right. But it is distorted by our sinfulness, by our wickedness, by our fallen nature and turned into revenge and retaliation. Something that is very, very dangerous and a definite struggle for us in the West. John Broadus, great theologian, in his commentary on this section makes the point as he is saying how Jesus is teaching the, that it is better to, 
to come to the alternative. In other words, it's better to, be, uh, to have your rights trampled on and to take up this, this Roman armor and carry it a mile and then after one mile say, I'll carry it one more. To allow your, your precious rights to be trampled on for the sake of the kingdom. John Broadus writes this. He says, it's a, he says, yet many professing Christians not only act when excited, but deliberately and habitually avow their intention to act in a way which is here so pointedly condemned. More sensitive as to what the world calls insult and dishonor than to the teachings of infinite wisdom and solemn commands of the divine redeemer. And then he says these words, O cowardly audacity, afraid to incur the world's petty frown and not afraid to displease God. In other words, he says, for many of us here in our culture, many of us here in the West are more worried about suffering shame, suffering embarrassment, suffering being frowned upon by the world rather than the justice of God and obedience to his commands. It is a struggle for us to let go of our rights, to let go of our possessions, to let go of our pride. And we are so quick to justify ourselves because of our, or justify ourselves into thinking that we have a right view of justice that is guiding our revenge. Where do we get our right understanding of justice from? There is a right understanding of justice. Justice is good and right. And as Christians, we know that at the end of all things, all will be made right. Why? Because our God is just. That he will not suffer the evildoer forever. That wickedness will be punished. Even though we, we hear the psalmist and we agree with him that so often it seems that our enemies are prospering, seems that those who would bring us harm are succeeding and we are being punished. But we know that at the end of all things, all will be made right. For our God is just. And for Christians, we know that our God is not only just, but he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Because we see, when we understand a proper view of justice and what is right we'll quickly understand what we as human beings, sinful, fallen rebels, deserve from God. And it's exclusively his wrath. And yet God, in his grace, and yet never, contra never, never contradicting his justice, pours his wrath out upon another, pours his wrath out on Jesus Christ in order so that we might be forgiven. And we might go free. This more than anything else, this understanding of what has been done for us by a just God ought to free us more than anything else to live a life that says, I don't care about my rights. I don't care about my possessions. I don't care about anything else in me. I'm going to live my life for the kingdom in light of what Christ has done to forgive me of my sin. This is a proper understanding of justice and one that both we and the world desperately needs to set our eyes on. 
what we also see from Christ as a right picture of non-retaliation. The message being teached here, Jesus actually put into action, doesn't he? Isaiah 53, this, this prophecy of Jesus, we mentioned it this morning, that we see fulfilled in the Gospels, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As Christians, we are not to be given over to a spirit of revenge and retaliation. We are to be given over to Christ and to follow in his example. Indeed, the point ought to be made that Jesus is making here that it is far more dangerous for you to give in to this false teaching and false understanding of revenge, this false interpretation of law. It's more dangerous to give in to that and to, to exact revenge than it is to be slapped and shamed and have your things taken and have your rights trampled on. So that if we are left with one extreme or the other, he says, take the extreme that Jesus took of being abused, of being shamed, knowing that you're in good company, that you're not alone, but are following in Christ's commands and in Christ's example. As we face, it's hard for us to think sometimes in light of these sort of cultural statements, right? We don't really live in a time where someone's suing us over our tunic. I don't know that anyone owns a tunic. We don't live in a time where people are coming up and slapping us on the backhand in order to embarrass us or, or humiliate us. We are never going to be compelled by some soldier that we have to carry their gear for a mile. But we all know what it feels like to have our rights infringed. We all know what it means to be wronged by the world or by others around us. And these principles are to guide us in how we are to react to these things. We're to react in a way like Christ reacted in a way that would rather take abuse, would rather take shame, as opposed to allow sin to take root in our lives. Beware, Christian, of the sin of the spirit of revenge. I think this is a sin that will quickly take root and is very hard to root out. We as believers need to beware of these kinds of things as all sin. The point of Jesus Sermon on the Mount here is he is expounding and laying out for us and clearly teaching so many of these, these, uh, these portions of the law that are misunderstood and, and mistaught. He is teaching and showing us that this is what kingdom living looks like. But more than that, he has granted the Holy Spirit in order to empower us to live these things out. And so, church family, let us live in light of these things. Let us trust that the Holy Spirit is in us and able to see us through whenever we feel like we're being wronged, whenever we feel like injustice is being done, whenever we feel like we are being shamed or humiliated. Let us look no further than to Christ himself and what he endured on our behalf and ask the Lord that he would grant us the same strength, the same endurance, and may we praise him all the way. Let's pray.